Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guests are Yuvi Ivanova and Mike Gilliland. They are the co-hosts of the Future Thinkers podcast, which is one of my personal favorites. I suggest you check it out if you want to hear some really interesting thinking about things that are going on at the cutting edge of our world. They're also in the process of launching what they call a smart village, a place for people to work and live together, hold events, and learn in a righteous way. Their smart village is very much like a Game B Proto B project, which we've talked about on the show from time to time. In fact, Yuvi and Mike have joined the Proto B Incubator, and we're trying to help them uh, get their project up and going. And in fact, it's their smart project that we're going to talk about today, at least mostly. So welcome, Yuvi and Mike. Awesome. Thanks for having us, Jim. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this should be fun. So let's just start with the high-level overview. Tell us a little bit about your smart village. You know, where is it? How big is it? Uh, you know. Sure. Um, so we are uh, building it in BC, Canada, in the Canadian Rocky Mountains, uh, in a very rural area. And uh, we chose that remote of an area for a reason because uh, it just has fewer regulations and more freedom for us to kind of set up our own structures and uh, try things out that haven't been done before. And the the property is uh, 107 acres, so it's quite large and it's part farmland and part hilly. And um, so we're going to be doing a combination of a bunch of things, um, different hackathons for developing regenerative practices and clean technology and as well as social technology for, you know, how people get along and how they govern things and how decisions are made. So it's going to be um, a bit of a lab, a rural innovation lab. So... uh, it's kind of hard to say exactly what it's going to be, but um, we think about it as an experimental ground for new civilization design. I think that's probably the easiest way to describe it. So people will be living there, people will, will be working there, there will be agriculture going on, a bunch of different events, and uh, it's going to be exciting. We're really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I checked out the location when you sent me the uh, coordinates on Google Maps. Looks like a beautiful area, right on a river, just below a lake, mountains on one side, some uh, some bottomland, uh, enough bottomland to do some interesting things with it. Looks very nice. Uh, I checked out the elevation. Looks like it's around 600 meters, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It looks like the climatic zones are somewhere between 5A and 5B, uh, which would give you uh, so you have worst case wintertime temperatures of uh, minus 28C or minus 20F, something like that. Yeah, normally it, uh, it's minus 5, minus 10 in the winter. Looks like in, but, you know, those the hardiness zones are based on something like the 95th percentile. So, uh, you know, how, how uh, cold can you expect it to be once in every 20 years, something like that? Because that, that what determines uh, what plants can live there. And uh, and wildlife and what have you. So I always I always look at that as a very important variable when looking at a location. Mm-hmm. At that kind of location, uh, you ought to be able to do some agriculture, but there are probably some things you won't be able to do. Well, actually, sixty uh, percent of the farm or of the the land is being used as a farm currently. So they grow potatoes and uh, all kinds of vegetables, and they raise meat as well. Yeah. So and it's been used as an organic farm since at least the nineties. So the soil is already built up and, you know, it's very fertile land because it's in a river valley. Yeah. And with a uh, lake above it, it probably means you don't have to worry about flooding too much. There's actually an earth dam to control the flooding. And it was the first earth dam that was built for that purpose in the whole Columbia River Basin. So, um, yeah, there's, there's no major flooding. I mean, in the spring, of course, the water levels are higher and it seeps through the, through the ground. So some of the fields are a little damp, but it's nothing major. That's good. That's, those are all important things to think about when you're you know, choosing a location for one of these startup communities. And uh, if you miss even one of them, you can be screwed. Right? And, and you mentioned one of the most important, uh, at least as we talk about in our Proto-B incubator, 
And that is the hassles of dealing with land use regulations. Yes. The zoning guys, the building people, the health department. Uh, sounds like you've done some research on, uh, on, on that. Tell us what you've learned. Yeah, well, one of the major benefits of this piece of property is that there's a good chunk of it that it isn't zoned. So we need uh, building permits and we need to build things to spec and build as we say we're going to build. Um, but for the most part, we can do what we want. So we can do a number of experimental dwellings on the unzoned portion of the property. We might do some geodesic domes. We might do shipping container homes, earth ships, cob houses, hempcrete. We're hoping to give people kind of a, a sample of all the different ways to live regeneratively and passively in a home. That's cool. Do their local building codes allow those kinds of things? Yeah, for the most part. Um, yeah, I mean, there's still some regulation for, for you know, uh, thing, building things that are structurally sound. Um, but we have actually attracted a bunch of people who are familiar with those and who will advise us on that before we start building. The, the current owners of the property actually have a timber framing business. So they've got a ton of experience with building and they've already built two of the structures on the property. Mm -hmm. oh, that's handy and they can help you navigate through the bureaucratic process perhaps. Yeah. 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 And they're partnering on our on our project as well. Oh, excellent. So you mentioned people will be living there. Do you uh, do you have any sense of what the year-round population might be? Uh, we're going to start small because the social cohesion is really important to us. So probably no more than 12 people to start. Um, and we're going to cap it at 50 adults as it grows. But that'll be over several years, you know, that we expect it to grow to that size. Um, we've had a lot of interest from people wanting to live there. Um, so we do have to, you know, create some criteria for, for how we select people. And since some of these people we haven't met before, we've decided that we're just going to have a testing period where they can come and stay for a few months. We see how we get along and if they're, you know, contributing to the project and if, yeah, if the social cohesion is there and then if it works, then we can invite people to live there longer. Yeah, that seems to be a good model. I've done a lot of research in how the Israeli kibbutzes have done it, for instance. And they they were all over the place. Some were open admissions, which turned out to be a nightmare and a catastrophe, as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, others then overreacted and have a two or three year probationary period. Uh, but it seems like uh, something between three months and a year probationary period seems like something that has worked fairly well in the Israeli kibbutz community idea. Long enough to... Uh, really be able to see if people cohere with the other folks and yet not so long as it seems like a life sentence in probationary uh, status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, um, the, someone mentioned to us recently that it, uh, four seasons is a good way to test. Just give people a year, let give yourself a chance to see them change throughout the season. Cause people kind of get used to things and acclimatize and drop the mask a little bit after that amount of time. Yeah. And especially the Canadian winters, you know, if people haven't experienced that, they might not be used to it. And they, and it changes people's disposition as well because it's, you know, it's cold outside. So people spend more time inside, uh, you know, there's less sunshine. So obviously it changes people's mood. So it's useful to see how people respond to that. Yeah. I think that's a very good point, particularly in a relatively extreme, uh, climatic uh, location like you guys are in where there's a big difference between the summer and the winter. And there are just mm -hmm. a lot of people that aren't cut out, cut out for those uh, Northern winters. Yeah. Uh, now uh, onboarding brings up an obvious uh, next question, which is governance. Are you going to have a formal mechanism in place, essentially a, uh, you know, a constitution for your community, or are you going to kind of try to grow that organically as you go? I think it, it needs to be organic. We need to, develop things over time by testing and, and, you know, experimenting. I don't think we really get to dictate a rule set and then hope that people are going to adhere to that. Um, the main thing we want to do is lean into conflict when they arise and try and have just regular open communication as much as possible. So the, the main rule I could see is like uh, maybe a meeting every week or every couple of days or something like that. The whole group gets together talks about what, you know, what we're doing this week and what the plan is for next week and any grievances anyone has, stuff like that. Yeah, just kind of a council. Everybody sits in a circle and works it out. And I think that while we only have a few people there, that will probably be sufficient. As we grow in size, we, we will probably develop more formal mechanisms for governance. 
That seems very reasonable. Yeah, below 20, I used, uh, I used to say the same thing about companies when I grew back in the days when I was an entrepreneur. At 20, you could uh, manage the thing around the lunch table. Yeah. Uh, when it gets above 20, you might have to think a little bit about structure. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And uh, again, the Israeli kibbutzes are an interesting example. Uh, their original constitutions uh, called for a weekly meeting, which most of them still have. Uh, but over time, they realized that it's kind of ridiculous to have 100 people, uh, you know, discussing the nuances of the, you know, repairs for the sewer system, for instance. And so they started creating uh, committees and task teams and delegated those with areas of responsibility, though the uh, members of those task teams and committees did have to report back to the uh, to the uh, general meeting, which had the, you know, the power to dissolve or create uh, or override uh, the uh, the task teams and the committees, which I thought was kind of an interesting hybrid and kind of uh, a flexible structure that allowed to be adaptive over time. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that sounds good. The other thing is um, we've got a fair amount of experience now with facilitating kind of larger group Zoom calls uh, to try and do some collective sense making around global issues and also around personal kind of development. Um, so I think bringing that experience into this location is going to be really helpful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really good that you guys have that experience because uh, again, trying to learn that on the fly can sometimes be a disaster as well. Yeah, for sure. So what's the uh, economic model for the people who live there? Let's say, you know, you get to 50 adults living full time in seven years or something like that. How do you anticipate that they will make a living? Well, that's a tough question because what people are good at, what they like doing is as diverse as the people themselves. So kind of dictating that at the beginning is going to be pretty difficult. We have had a number of experiences over the years um, kind of doing this digital nomad thing, working online and traveling around the world that uh, has shown us that you can have really excellent group coherence with a complete separation of the income. So if everyone's working online, freelancing, pulling in some sort of income um, and you have that separation, then really the only thing, it's like dating in a way. If you know you're compatible with someone, then really the next thing you have to worry about is chemistry. Um, so that's, and I'm only speaking about that from like the online dating world and that's how UV and I met. So I think it's kind of the same thing here. If that's the initial focus, if people have their income coming from the online world, then we have a lot more space to figure out the group dynamics first. And then over time, we're going to be running a number of different startups and businesses and events. So the way the um, the village itself will make money at the very beginning will be a combination of like Airbnb style rentals and, um, you know, experience based rentals, really. And then uh, doing big events, conferences, workshops, retreats, stuff like that. Yeah. And we do anticipate that there will be more cooperative ventures at the village um, in the future. But I think that just to start um, making that requirement that people are self-sufficient is going to give us some runway to figure those things out. Yeah, it certainly has its pluses, but of course it also has its minuses, which it means that you're gonna be selecting from a relatively narrow demographic uh, of people who've figured out how to uh, essentially uh, make the game of digital nomad work, which uh, is a, a fairly elite uh, slice of the population? Potentially. Um, our experience is that, you know, having lived that and done that for almost 10 years is that uh, the population of people doing that kind of thing is a lot bigger than we first anticipated and that most people anticipate. It's, it's actually an extremely attractive lifestyle for young people. And you really don't have to have that much experience or know that much to get something off the ground. There are tons of freelancer websites, and as long as you've got a good profile and you do your work really well, you can have work constantly coming in. Yep, both my yeah, my daughter uh, lived that life for quite a while and did very successful. But yeah. she, of course, she had to spend a lot of time on uh, client development. You know, I, yeah. for sure, <laughs> counseled her early on. Just yeah. budget thirty percent of your time for business development. And she said, "I thought that was crazy, Dad, but you were right." <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. How about agriculture? Have you guys? Uh, uh, intend to operate an agricultural business there as well? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in regenerative agriculture and permaculture. So kind of mimicking a, um ecosystem on the farm. So it's not just monoculture. Um, and, you know, the type of agriculture that improves biodiversity and increases soil. So uh, as far as the business aspect of it, this is something that we're new to. 
So um, we're going to try a bunch of different things and see what works. And the previous owners of the property um, actually give, gave us exactly that advice because they tried a bunch of different things, but they went all in each year. Like one year, they just went all into pigs. Next year, they went all into deer. They raised deer for meat for a while. And we're um, not talking about like experimenting with a, a dozen deer. They went to 200 deer in the first year. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, the advice that they gave us is just like try a bunch of little things all in the first couple of years, see what you like, see what's profitable, see what, you know, fits with your personality and your lifestyle. And then, uh, you know, focus on, on a few things after that. One, one thing is that we're focused bioregionally at first. We're trying to figure out what, what scales in terms of principles that can be run across different bioregions, but what specifically do we need to do to get this thing running in our bioregion? And one of the things that's most interesting to me is um, hemp as a building material. And in our region, that's actually one of the um, largest growers in Canada for for hemp and cannabis plants and everything. So for us to either partner with neighboring farms who already have hemp or to start growing that on our property wouldn't be a huge, uh, difficult process. And then I'm looking at creating hempcrete bricks as kind of an alternative building material that we could experiment with on the property. And maybe over time, it could become a regional supplier. I, I wanted to add something actually to the previous question about the kinds of people that we will be uh, living with to start. Um, one of the things that we thought about is doing workstay programs where people can come and um, exchange their labor for accommodation and contribute to, you know, to the farm or to one of the other ventures. So that um, wouldn't require them to have their own online income. It would just, you know, because their room and board would be provided. But that would be more for short-term people, you know, like for a few months, let's say. Yeah, there's a uh, program called Woofing, Woofers. Yes. Uh, and in our area here, we have a lot of itinerant woofers that come through, at least we did before the COVID, and worked on small uh, or sometimes not so small alternative agricultural projects. And uh, you know, people who were using that program found that people were generally of good quality and you could get uh, in them in fairly good quantity if you wanted to. Yeah. And apparently Woofing was founded um, just in the same region in by somebody who lived in Nelson. That's what I found out recently. Hmm, that's interesting. I did not know that. Somehow I thought it started in the UK, but uh, uh, I would not claim to be an expert on it other, other than that I know uh, several people who have been woofers and people who have employed woofers and every all of them seem to speak well of the program. Mm. It's interesting. I like this hempcrete idea. That's kind of interesting because uh, as crops go, hemp, as long as you're not trying to grow it for marijuana, is actually a real easy crop to grow. Uh, you know, it's uh, pretty hard to kill, actually. So it's a uh, weed, exactly, <laughs> right? And producing biomass with that stuff uh, does not require a high level of expertise. No, and it sucks in carbon in the growing process, and as just standing there as a brick, mm -hmm. it's a carbon negative building product. Very clever idea. I might have to look into that because uh, you know. Uh, I'm also a farmer, and uh, though I will say I'm more of a gentleman farmer, where I have hire other people to do the actual work, uh, and my wife is much more active in alternative agricultural programs uh, than I. So we're constantly thinking about these things. We have uh, friends who grew some hemp for the CBD market and ended up losing their ass because they uh, uh, they were a year late into the CBD uh, uh, gold mm -hmm. rush, uh, and uh, yeah, it might be something for them to do with their expertise of being able to grow hemp. Uh, take a look at have to take a look at that. Nice, yeah, very good. Uh, what about ownership model? This is one that when you know we start thinking about proto bees, uh, I think there's lots of different options here. Uh, are people, uh, let's say, people who move to the uh, to the place with the intent of living there permanently? Let's say they pass the uh, probationary period. Uh, are they going? Are you guys going to have ownership in common of all that land in the buildings, or is there going to be a common ownership with individual ownership of the houses? Uh, do you have ideas on how that might work? Yeah, we've talked about this a lot, and actually, this conversation has dictated the funding model that we pursued at the very beginning. Because to set up a community land trust before you own the land is—I uh, don't know if it's just in Canada or if this is the same in the states—it's a very lengthy, very expensive, time-consuming, and complicated process that would actually make us miss the window to even get this property, um, to even acquire the property. So. 
the main thing we're looking for now are loans, um, kind of patient debt capital to get the thing started. And then those loans at some point in the future, when, you know, both sides agree, um, can convert potentially into uh, equity. But what has been most interesting for me personally about this whole process is figuring out a way to tokenize it on the blockchain, to have tokens that represent your ownership of the property. And, you know, if we look at subdividing the property, that's a bit of a pain in the ass. I would actually much prefer there be some sort of joint ownership. And then, you know, people have the right to use specific buildings. Yeah, or that, you know, maybe they lease the land under their feet and then own the building that the land is built on. Yeah, yeah, that's the land trust model, typically, where the land trust will give you a 99 year lease on a quarter acre and you build your house on that. Yeah. And then there's usually some formula on how your heirs can renew the lease at uh, some step up in uh, in price after 99 years. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the condominium structure. There's co-op structures. Uh, there's you know quite a large array of uh, legal entity structures uh, that can accomplish different kinds of things. But uh, truthfully, one has to sort of get some sense of what it is you want to accomplish before you choose the uh, the legal entity structure. Yeah, yeah, and this is also why we've we've chosen the uh, loan structure as our um, kind of startup model for um, for raising funds. And uh, we've just registered a basic corporation and we're doing it that way to start because it's simply the easiest, the most agile and the cheapest way to get started to, you know, because time is of the essence. And we found this property um, and we do have a deadline for completing the, the purchase of it. So we're going that way to start, but that is not our intention to go forward that way. So at some point, you'll convert it into another one of these uh, more cooperative style structures. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's the intention. That's interesting. Yeah, I know you guys are uh, out looking to raise some money. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about your fundraising program? And I've asked our producers to jam this uh, show through as quickly as we can through our production process so we can get it out in time to maybe be helpful in uh, helping you guys round up uh, investors. Well, thanks. Yeah. So, you know, as we mentioned, we're we're looking at collecting loans um, fr- from basically fifty to one hundred thousand dollars on average, and um, we're going to use that money to purchase the property and to start building some of the the kind of smaller accommodations for people to come live there. Um, we've had a lot of interest. Like, basically, every single person who's uh, pledged any amount of money has expressed their interest to live there pretty much immediately. So we had some other ideas of what we wanted to build first. We thought we were going to do a makerspace first or an event center. And it turns out what we need to do right away is build the accommodations. Yeah, build more dwellings. Yeah. So we're looking to raise um, 2 million Canadian dollars, which is a little bit less than American. Um, and most of that is going to go to purchasing the property. And um, the remainder is going to go to building these new accommodations. Have you carefully budgeted how much you're going to need above and beyond the land purchase? Mm -hmm. Fairly carefully, uh, but we were anticipating having to raise quite a bit more money for the future development of this project. So, you know, one of the things that we've thought of is loan forgiveness once the structures are up and running. In some ways, it's almost like a promissory note um, so that people can invest in any of the different businesses that we start up on the property. And, you know, from the very beginning, we're trying to figure out how to template and scale this whole project so that other people can start this on their own. We're not trying to be like the hub of smart villages in the world. We want this to be replicable and scalable. So we're building a lot of kind of content production into this. We've uh, partnered with a documentary film team who are going to tell the story as this whole thing unfolds. We're going to be trying to host a lot of different events and, you know, give people the chance to check out how these buildings are built and what they're like to live in. So, yeah, I mean, the scalability and replicability, again, is the probably the most important thing to us at this point. Mm-hmm. I want to explain what Mike said by loan forgiveness, because you didn't really dive into that. Um, so we're asking people if they would be interested in forgiving a portion of their loan in exchange for... Uh, staying on the property in exchange for different services uh, like events or use of the makerspace or or whatnot, Um, or if they would be interested in forgiving a portion of their loan in exchange for some form of ownership in the future. And that structure is still to be determined, but we are giving people that option. Yeah, you might use a little bit different language because forgiveness, particularly on that last one, might sound 
uh, I don't know what, uh, not quite businessy enough. Uh, you know, one uh, uh, language that covers the case, say, for instance, where you're going to get a building lot in return uh, might be uh, what they call uh, debt for equity swap, right? Even though it may not quite be equity, debt for lease swap, or say you, you have $100,000 uh, invested and you have the option or the, the opportunity at some point to swap that out for, uh, you know, say $100,000 worth of building lot, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's much better term. Yeah, it is much better term. It was actually our lawyer that used the debt forgiveness term. So that's why we've been using it. But yeah, you're right. Swap sounds much better. Yeah, I would use swap. Uh, and for tax reasons, I understand why they would use the word forgiveness because there's tax consequences to forgiving loans. Exactly. And you don't actually want to do that because a, a forgiven loan is taxable income to the entity. Anyway, uh, it's, oh, it's very, very complicated. And some of the things that we're starting to dig into in the Proto B incubator uh, is to explore this space. Because as you know, it's very complicated and no one structure is right for every project. You really have to think through, uh, you know, how much capital you have access to, how, where you're going to get your capital for growth over time, because uh, at least back of the envelope, uh, it can easily cost 10 times as much to build out the structures on a community as it does to buy the land. So uh, yeah. over, over time, the need for capital will go up quite substantially as you, uh, as you build out. You take a rough uh, you know, rule of thumb as uh, the total capital you may need to invest in, the, in built structure Hard to see how it could be much less than $100,000 per adult. So at 50 adults, that's $5 million. That's, uh, you know, two and a half times uh, the land. And $100,000 per adult is a, a relatively uh, conservative budget. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and it actually kind of works out to quite similar of what we predicted it's going to cost. Yeah. And, and again, if you do things like, uh, you know, do uh, debt for lease swaps uh, so that people then get uh, a building lot, but the, but then they're responsible for finance, uh, financing the construction. Uh, that's an interesting way to uh, minimize the amount of capital the entity itself has to uh, raise and yet still get the buildings built. And of course, you have to have a reserve for your shared space, which I assume you're, uh, that's part of the plan. So let's actually, let's talk about that a little bit. So let's assume there's some form of individual lease or something uh, long-term lease on the residential structures, I'm presuming, and I looked at the, the slide deck you guys had, or I guess it was actually a website, uh, it looks like you have the idea of investing a fair amount in shared infrastructure as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you have in mind there. Yeah, well, we want this place to be basically a lab that people can come in and use to prototype different ideas and and you know inventions or processes. So uh, makerspace is going to be really crucial for us or kind of a shared tool shed um, as well as a co-working space where people can, you know, sit and collaborate with each other and bring in their teams. Um, so we're also going to have different structures for recreation and, you know, focused on health so that people can have a good lifestyle and, uh, you know, a business running a business can be quite stressful. So uh, being able to relax uh, is also really important. So eventually we're going to build um, a gym and uh, a sauna and things like that. There's another part of this too, where sponsorship really plays a role with the fact that we're producing so much content. And uh, we actually have a partner on our team who has set up uh, maker spaces and innovation centers all over uh, Western Canada. And generally the way he's gone about getting these, these things set up is to get sponsorships and donations from the companies who make these tools um, because, you know, coming into a makerspace will give you a taste, but it's not exactly the place you want to be working from. If you're going to start manufacturing a product or building something is a full-time gig. So um, it's kind of a good setup to be able to have these things sponsored and then people can just buy their own equipment straight from the company. I'll give you another idea for a makerspace. And we built a very successful makerspace in uh, Stanton, Virginia, uh, my partner and I, and we eventually converted it to a not-for-profit. And one of our hypotheses, uh, which turned out to be correct, was that there was a vast amount of unused and quasi-abandoned uh, machine tools, hand tools, uh, supplies of all sorts in the basements, barns, and garages of the region. Mm-hmm. Turned out it was true. I would say 80, 90 percent of the equipment, including some very high-end stuff, uh, uh, we were able to basically scrounge or buy for next to nothing from people 
uh, oh, yeah, it'd be cool to have a wood shop. Oh, I haven't used it in 15 years. Yeah, I'll sell it to you for five cents on the dollar. I'll just give it to you. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, that's worth exploring, too. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you may be surprised at how quickly uh, you can ramp up. Uh, if you're interested in you, what we've been able to scrounge, take a look at stantonmakerspace.org, is it, or .com? I don't remember. I think maybe .com. And uh, I'd be happy to put you in touch with uh, our folks that are still uh, running that place. They may, may be able to give you some clever ideas uh, on uh, how to get stuff for nothing or damn close to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Great. I appreciate that. It's funny. We don't even have the property yet, and people are already doing that with us. Yeah. yeah and, and, and the same thing happened to us, right? It literally... Uh, you know, a day after we got our property, people started showing up with stuff, right? <laughs> and then we had a fire. Uh, That's probably the landlord's fault. Uh, but uh, after that, we had a huge outpouring of donations from the community to replace a lot of the stuff that we had lost, which was you know, very interesting. So don't underestimate that. And uh, as a potential way to bootstrap a, a makerspace, yeah, we have a, you know, now our third generation building, we have 6,500 square feet full of interesting stuff. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one thing I'm super excited to to get working on. Yeah. Because I, I love building stuff in my hands and I learned how to do some carpentry this year. I built my desk, uh, built an eight foot desk for myself. I plan on building a conference table there. So yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. I love that stuff. I, we, I built our bed, uh, actually our first generation bed. Eventually we had it re, uh, replaced by almost identical, but using much fancier woods and stuff by a professional. But uh, yeah, I couldn't find a good bed that had built-in bookshelves. For whatever reason, that's fallen out of fashion. Uh, and so I said, oh shit, I can build a king-size bed with two bookshelves built in. That can't be that hard. Turned out it wasn't that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, understand the attraction. And I think that, you know, the kind of people that would like to live at a place like your smart village some percentage of them, though not all, will be very interested in doing those kinds of things. I think mm-hmm. that's yeah. a, real, a real good and attractive amenity, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, to kind of circle back to one of the earlier questions of what kind of people will be there first. Um, yeah, Mike mentioned digital nomads, but actually a lot of the people that have been interested um, already have some sort of a business that relates to what we're doing, but they want to transition into more of a game B version of it, let's say. Um, or more regenerative, more sustainable version of it. Um, so that's also one of our kind of, um, how would you say, types of people that we're looking to attract and have been attracting. So they're not their business is not necessarily digital, but they already have a business. So for example, um, an architect who wants to do more passive homes or more sustainable homes, or a real estate developer who wants to focus more on smart villages rather than conventional developments, things like that. Mm, that's very interesting. How about the, the other, the artisanal side of things? People have a business on Etsy, for instance. Yeah, definitely. Actually, one person interested has business on Etsy. Um, yeah, there, there are a ton of these kind of DIY or or kind of like more on the ground human level stuff. There's another couple there. There are chefs that want to be involved in this. So cool. Well, that uh, chefs are, uh, reminds me of a question I have on my list. Uh, you, have you guys taken a position on whether you'll do communal dining or not? That seems to be a key question in, in the design of intentional communities. Well, one thing is that we want to do is have these kind of micro pockets of micro villages all throughout the property because there's kind of uh, in the unzone portion, it's quite hilly and it's forested. But there are these little benches that could, you know, hold probably seven to 10 dwellings. And we wanted to have kind of a central uh, hub in the middle of all of these different dwellings and then have multiple hubs throughout the property. And those hubs would have, you know, a communal kitchen, um, maybe even a, a recreation center or kind of like a hangout space, living room, media center, something like that. So, yeah, we've been thinking about um, doing different variations of communal living, like mm-hmm. maybe one level that's very highly communal, one middle ground and one kind of like separated individualistic micro village. I like that because, you know, one of the things I, I uh, try to pound the table a lot on in our Proto B work is we don't really know the answers of what's going to work and what works for different kinds of people is likely to differ. Exactly. So doing, I think doing experiments, uh, you, you guys should be commended by the fact that you don't have an ideological position uh, on things like that, but rather, hey, let's uh, try different things and see what works. And actually, we may find out that different things work for different kinds of people and there's nothing wrong with that. 
Well, the burgundy jumpsuits are definitely mandatory for this. <laughs> oh, I, I'll tell you what, I'm going to uh, throw in 50 bags of Kool-Aid. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> if things get a little off, off kilter, right? <laughs> Yeah, but you know, like there, there's this idea out there, I, I suppose, was in my research about intentional communities and regenerative villages that more communal living is better. But I don't really believe that. I, I think you want to be able to accommodate all types of people in a diverse array of, peop of people and give them the opportunity to live how they want to live as long as the, the system that they're living within is, for the most part, regenerative. So, you know, some people don't want to have communal showers and communal kitchens and stuff like that. They want to be in their own bubble and come out when they feel ready to do so. And they're just more naturally introverted people. So we don't want to, like, leave those people out of the equation here. Yeah, it's interesting. The Israeli kibbutzes have explored across that whole space. And they originally started out with all of them having mandatory communal meals, period. There wasn't even kitchens in the individual apartments. Uh, but over time, it's become much more of a mixed model. So I think you're you're onto something there and that uh, there are definitely people who who never cook for themselves and always get the meals at the communal dining hall. But then and there's other people at the other extreme who typically cook almost all their meals other than typically Saturday night, right before the, uh, the weekly big meeting when it's sort of socially uh, bad form not to show up for the dinner before. And uh, so it's kind of nice to have a, a, a more flexible model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one of the most exciting things for me is, you know, people ask us, well, how are you going to do this or how are you going to do that? And I, my answer is, I don't know. And it's not out of ignorance. It's because I'm purposely choosing not to know so that something can emerge to allow space for emergence. Because the way that I think about it is if we know exactly what we're doing, then we're not innovating. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, you know, I like to tell people, like uh, our President Eisenhower, who was also the general in charge of the Normandy invasion, the biggest military action in the history of the human race, uh, except maybe the Battle of Kursk over there in Russia, right? That might have been a little bigger. Uh, the, uh, uh, he'd always say, uh, plan, planning is indispensable, but plans are useless. Yeah, huh. I like which I love the tension of that. You know, it's useful to think it through. What are the dimensions of the problem space? And what are some possible configurations in a high dimensional uh, design of, of a location? However, don't be dogmatic about it, right? When you actually start doing it, you're going to learn things that, you, that you're going to learn on the ground that are quite different from what you thought conceptually when you were in the planning stage. I exactly. I like Mike Tyson's version better. Which is? Um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or punched in the face or something. Yeah, or maybe it was punched in the mouth. Yeah, I really, I've heard that version, too. I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that appeals to me a lot. Uh, let me dig into one of my favorite little more prosaic questions, because, again, it's uh, critical uh, to making these things work. You mentioned building houses and pods of houses up on benches. Uh, you know, benches are tough for things like uh, uh, water and sewer. Uh, how do you guys uh, intend to handle particularly sewer? That always seems to be... Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that's that's a real problem in getting approval from health departments and things like that, particularly up on bench lands. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the area that we're building is called the Kootenays, and all of it is mountainous because it's all in the Rocky Mountains. So there's a lot of expertise in the area about building specifically on hillsides. Um, so there's a lot of people who specialize in that. And, uh, you know, the current structures uh, there, one of them is built on a hill, Two, um, well, two really. Well, yeah. one of them is kind of at the at the foot of the hill, and the other one is really up on the hill. And um, they all use septic tanks, um, and they all pump water, and they don't have any problems with water pressure and don't have any problems with sewage. So I think that expertise is already there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and the other nice thing is today there's been a lot of work on advanced, uh, you know. Uh, septic systems, so-called sand pile systems or uh, aeration systems, et cetera. Uh, so there are more options to choose from, though I will point out that some of those uh, more modern systems are uh, quite a bit more expensive than your traditional uh, septic tank drain field. And uh, you might check with the health department because uh, often, they'll, they, in fact, they almost always will grandfather in the old septic systems, but they may require uh, more advanced systems for new construction. It's certainly worth looking into. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the structures on the property is actually fairly new. It's within the last couple of years that they built it. So, and that was built by the owners of the property. So they're, you know, quite experienced with that stuff and they're going to be involved in the building process going forward. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Talk a little bit about the surrounding area. Again, when I looked at the uh, on the Google Earth, it looked like there's a beautiful lake up uh, above you guys, and there's uh, two or three ghost towns or very small settlements nearby. Uh, uh, how far off do you have to go to a place that might have, say, a supermarket, something like that? Yeah. So um, there are a couple of towns nearby. They're not actually ghost towns. They're very um, vibrant and have a lot of eccentric people living there. Um, That's part of the reason why we chose that region is because it does have a lot of really interesting people. It's not just, you know, hillbillies, (laughs) although there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, don't be making fun of us Hill Williams. (laughs) Hill Williams. I love that. That's the more dignified version. I live deep in the Appalachian Mountains myself, and I even own a few pairs of shoes, so shit. <laughs> so shit. Oh, uh, Hill um, Williams. I gotta Hill remember Williams, that. Hill Williams, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, there's a there's a supermarket um, in the town, thirty minutes away, with all the food that you would need, and it has a couple of uh, restaurants and coffee shops as well for for people who want that. Um, but there is a small shop um, and that specializes in particular in local grown produce, uh, just a, like seven minutes drive away from the property. Um, for, for other services, like, you know, if you need a big hospital or a, a full, full on bank, then that's an hour and a half drive away. And in Canada, we measure everything in, in hours of driving because the distances are large and sometimes you've got windy mountain roads. So the you know, number of kilometers doesn't tell you anything. Um, yeah, so I would say that basic services are mostly in the town half an hour away and more advanced services are in a city hour and a half away. Which, uh, which city is that, by the way? It's Nelson, which is um, widely regarded as one of the coolest cities to live in Canada because it has so much art and culture. Very cool. And uh, looking at the map, it looked like about six hours to Calgary, something like that. Yeah. That's your closest real big city. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Kelowna and Kamloops are kind of medium-sized cities. They're about 100,000 people each. Um, and they are both, um, I think Kelowna is about five hours away. Kamloops is about six. Got it. So it's pretty remote, but not uh, so remote that you don't have access to anything. That's prob- That's an interesting uh, an interesting kind of location. And, you know, I definitely take to heart, uh, you know, same here in, in the mountains of uh, the Appalachians. Uh, we strictly talk about how long it takes, not how many miles it is, because mm-hmm. nobody really cares. You know, going over to our county seat, for instance, is oh about nine miles by drone flight, but it's about <laughs> a half an hour drive uh, by the actual roads that are available. Yeah, one thing we're we've partnered with a whole bunch of companies in the region already, and one of them that we've partnered with is uh, called Tesla Tours. And so they're they've set up a Tesla car sharing program, and they're investing their money in the autonomous portion of these cars so that within a couple of years, hopefully um, it'll be as easy as just call the car on your app, step in, and then, you know, you've got an office for an hour and a half to get to Nelson. If you know what I mean? It might work. Might work. I mean, I would be a little leery about uh, autonomous cars on windy ass mountain roads with logging trucks and uh, grain trucks and things of that sort. At least our roads here aren't so good about it. That making that, now, how far do you go off the road to avoid head head on into a logging truck? Uh, I'm not sure I'd trust uh, Elon Musk's software for that point <laughs> yet. Yeah, it's got to be, I mean, before it's even legal, it's got to be at least 20 times uh, safer than a human driver. But we've got some experience with that, just having driven around the area in the Tesla on autonomous mode. And it's actually, it feels pretty safe. There are kind of a few hiccups now and then. You don't, You can't just totally fall asleep at the driver's seat, but... It feels pretty safe for the most part, and there are a few sketchy moments. That's the issue, though. I mean, I've done a lot of research on autonomous cars. In fact, we're having an expert on the show uh, week after next, which is, yeah, doing the 99% isn't all that hard, but it's the 99.1% that kills you or the Mm -hmm. 99.9% that kills you, Mm -hmm. and particularly in bad weather when the visibility is limited. Uh, And particularly in the Tesla. I mean, uh, unfortunately, Elon Musk has chosen not to go with high-end sensors, and he just thinks he can use his cameras and a little bit of radar. Uh, well, most experts believe that if you don't have LIDAR, and it isn't going to work too ha- too well in a heavy snow or in the fog or things of that ilk. So 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we're several years out anyway, so I'm I'm just kind of imagining it as a potential fun future, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I'm less stoked about the technology part. I'm <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a Luddite, but I'm just um I think that sometimes low tech solutions are just more resilient. Uh so I'm entertaining that as an interesting option for the future, but I'm also just trying to ground it in, okay, what if it doesn't happen? How do we do it? And, um, you know, people just drive. Exactly. And uh, that's how people live in the region, that whole region. People are just used to it. Yeah, where I live, it's an hour's drive to the nearest supermarket over three mountain ridges. And so you only go once every two weeks. You know, yeah. no big deal. And make sure you got plenty of beer in stock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought about getting an electric car, but I couldn't find an extension cord long enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, uh, speaking of technology and Elon Musk, though, with uh, digital nomads, uh, one absolutely indispensable thing is going to be high quality Internet access. Uh, how's the Internet access at the property? So right now, it's about 10 megabits per second down, um, and that's through a satellite. Uh, it's not a satellite, or, or it's a, a dish. Like a dish, yeah, not satellite. It's, it's a dish that beams the internet, I think, to the nearest town. Yeah, from but, the mountain. But there's really an interesting project happening there. There's a fiber optic internet company that started in Caslow, the town that's 30-minute drive from our property. And um, they're really supplying the entire region with fiber internet. And this is like gigabit connections. And um, our little town is next up on their agenda. So we might have to throw a bit of money at it to rush it along, but um, we're going to have pretty awesome connections within the next year or so. And that would be great. also we're investigating another option of um, just upgrading the dish and beaming a gigabit connection there from the tower. And the, the internet company in the, in the nearby town that's half an hour away, it's actually a, a local internet company that was started there. It's not one of those big national companies. So, you know, their offices are right there. You can go meet them. Their servers are in the basement of the old, uh, uh, what is it, courthouse building. Um, so yeah, they're, they're cool people and, um, it's, it makes it a lot more possible to get things done like that. Yeah, that's good. I mean, unfortunately we have fiber runs right by our farm and unfortunately our phone company are a bunch of fucking buffoons and, uh, <laughs> aren't they all, yeah, we'll pay for putting a point of presence in down the road and running fiber or good clean copper up to our farm, which is a mile off the road. It's been years and they still haven't done it yet. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you guys have a forward thinking local uh, Internet company, that would be great. Here's another thing to look for. And uh, it's our ace in the hole is, again, Elon Musk and his uh, was it Starlink, Starlink. Uh, system. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've actually signed up as a beta for that. And uh, because we do have such crappy Internet around here. Uh, hopefully we'll be relatively early on his list. He claims he's going to prioritize places that have poor internet coverage. And, you know, they, they're uh, talking about day one offering, uh, you know, 50 down and five to 10 up, which would be great, uh, at least for, you know, a family. Uh, if you have 50 people that live in there, maybe you have to put four or five of them in. But uh, uh, that's another uh, possible fallback position if it turns out that it takes longer than you think, which sometimes it does to, uh, you know, get a fiber type solution out to where you're at. Yeah, that's something we've been talking about, too. Yeah, that's, uh, I would suggest you sign up for the beta uh, right now. All right. They don't know you don't own the property. Just give them the address. Right? Yeah. And. Uh, because, uh, you know, the sooner the better. Uh, let's see. Oh, another one of our my favorite topics. Other people don't give a damn about it. But uh, what about things like child care and education? You know, I, I think of, you know, the modern world in the big city. Uh, it's fine to be single. It's fine to be, uh, you know, middle aged and have a good income. But it kind of sucks to be uh, young with kids and uh, really tight income. Uh, what are you going to what have you guys thought about making your uh, community uh, family friendly? And I know because we talked about it pregame that you guys have a young in yourself. Yeah, this is something that I've thought about a lot. And um, it's actually interesting that in the area, uh, a lot of families homeschool. It's in the nearby town. More of the children are homeschooled than not, even though there is an elementary school there. Um, so we're planning to do something similar. I, I don't have very much faith in the, you know, <laughs> public school system. Uh, so my plan over, you know, kind of, kind of a long-term plan is actually to develop a school, um, for kids, uh, that's cooperative with the other families in our village and in the area as well. 
It's interesting. Does, does Canada have the equivalent of what we have here in the United States called charter school systems? Uh, charter schools where private individuals can set up a school and yet get full government funding for it, which is uh, kind of interesting because it provides an opportunity to be able to hire professional teachers, et cetera. Of course, the downside is you fall, at least in part, under their regulatory framework. So there's you know, there's cons to it as well. But in some of our proto-B thinking here in the United States, uh, one of the kind of jurisdiction shoppings that we do uh, is try to figure out uh, which jurisdictions have the most favorable charter school rules. You know, I'm not sure. Um, our kid is only 10 months old, so I haven't thought that far into the future uh, in terms of the actual structure of it. But um, I know that there are several alternative schools in the area, you know, forest schools and whatnot, and Waldorf schools. And so uh, lots of people to talk to to figure out how they've done it. Yeah, that's, I would say, an important thing to look into because, you know, charter schools in the States, I mean, they typically will provide, you know, $10,000 or more per student per year. And that's a really significant resource to use to build out your school as opposed to having to, you know, scrounge volunteers and what uh, not necessarily all that affluent parents can afford to pay. So uh, it'd be worth looking into and seeing if that's uh, an opportunity where you are. I know that um, there's one forest school in the area where they are um, their tuition is half of it is covered by the government, so they're probably under some sort of a structure like that. Ah, well, that's, uh, you know, I would say uh, those, who, especially if, they're, if you're going to appeal a lot to people with children, uh, that would be an important thing to figure out as soon as you can, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, as you know, that's a critical concern. Maybe not when they're ten months old, but when they get five or six, I guarantee it'd be number one on your list. Is uh, how are we going to handle education without sending the kids off to the government sausage factory? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And we think that's a really important thing to explore in these uh, uh, in these proto B communities. Um, let's go back and finish off. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time here on uh, on what you guys need to get over the line on your fundraising and what kind of terms you're offering. Maybe some maybe some of our listeners can reach out to you. Uh, which we'll put on our episode page, a way to get get a hold of you uh, if they're interested in the in the proposal. So maybe a uh, quick form of uh, how much you still need to raise and uh, what what you what are you offering? So there's been enough pledged for us to pur purchase the property, but I don't anticipate everyone's going to convert. Um, you know, I, I always kind of want to over, you know, oversubscribe and then go from there. So we need two million total um, to do the initial development and to purchase the property. Uh, the structure we're setting up for funding is loans. We're doing a uh, 3% annual interest rate and we start paying back after five years. The thing is with that is that there are a number of people that are, that are like friends and family who are coming in and that we know personally for a long time that are investing. They're going, skipping straight to the investment part. Like equity. And so there is some opportunity for us to pay back some of the loans a little earlier. We're just not building that into the contract, but that is one of the things I hope to do that we could make payments within the first year. Mm -hmm. Now on the, on the details, uh, the 3% annual, do you intend to pay that uh, currently or are you going to defer that for five years also? It starts accruing right away, but uh, the repayment starts after five years. So that's, uh, and that's both interest payment and then some capital repayment. Uh, have you got, what, what's the actual structure? Is it like a 15 year mortgage or is, uh, interest only for 10 years and then a balloon? Have you guys, uh, I'm sure you have to have had to uh, work out those details. Yeah. Interest is first. Mm -hmm. You pay the interest first. So you pay interest. And then is there a time when uh, the loan itself is scheduled to be repaid? We're thinking probably about 10 years. But again, I mean, we need to raise more funds. This, this is kind of the bridge to get us on the property. Got it. Um, and we need to raise quite a bit more after that. So there's a fair chance that with the next raise, we're going to pay back a bunch of the loans or give people the option at that point, because we'll have known them for a period of time to switch over to the equity model. So we have about one third of the needed um, uh, money in that initial in initial investment rather than loans. So we actually don't need that much in loans to get this off the ground. Got it. So the, uh, let me see if I can phrase this in a way that would be intelligible to people who think about making investments. Uh, it's a, uh, does, does, does the loan have a term to it? Does it end at some point? I mean, in other words, do you have to pay back at period X if nothing else ever happens? There's nothing in the contract that says that at this point. 
So it's in basically a, a 3% open-ended loan that you will uh, pay back at some time in the future, but no conditions that basically say when or under what condition. This is something we can add, but I mean, yeah, at, at the point right now, no. And we're people have asked if they can do like individual negotiations on the loans. We've said tentatively yes. Um, so we're having those conversations, but really, yeah, we, we have to kind of leave it open at this point. Okay. Yeah. Understandable from, you know, from an investor perspective, that's not too attractive, but from a managing your own cash flows perspective, totally understandable. Yeah. Uh, and you also expect there, there may be some opportunities to swap debt for equity or debt for services, et cetera, as the uh, project gets underway. Exactly. And, you know, like we've been saying, this is a bit of a template, a lab, a testing ground for this type of thing. And we do intend, and the interest is in, incredibly high right now to start projects all over the region and all over the world. So we do intend on kind of templating and then replicating this model. So from an investment standpoint, if you're interested in the um, equity swap, there is a lot of opportunity for growth, for upside on yeah. that. Yeah, very interesting. All righty, Mike and Yuvi, this has been amazingly interesting. I uh, really just love this stuff. Um, it sounds like you guys have done a tremendous amount of thinking. I like the way your heads are screwed on right from an essentially an experimental mindset, not too doctrinaire, but willing to you know try lots of things and see what works. You know, Jim, I wanted to ask you one question actually before we wrap up here. Um, we're doing incubator programs. And that's something I'm putting a lot of thought into right now. What kind of innovations do we want to focus on? And so when we are talking to people like yourself in the Game B space, I want to ask question, the question to you. What would you do as an incubator program? What innovations would you focus on that you would build a contest around? A contest around? Interesting. Uh, now, is this for to make a business or to accomplish uh, a needful new uh innovation uh, that makes life better for communities like this? The it, latter. It, well, I would say it could be either, actually, um, because, you know, for, for hackathons, there's typically some sort of cash prize and there's a sponsor that gives that prize. So they're generally interested in the solution that's going to be created. And maybe they might be interested in investing into that solution as a company. Um, so both sides, really, we can do non-for-profit and for-profit. Gotcha. I'll throw out one of my pet favorites that's completely unfashionable, but is actually pretty important. Uh, we all know there's lots of interest in photovoltaic electricity, and I'm sure you guys will install some at some point. May already have some on the property. Yeah, we, we already do, have yeah. a lot. <laughs> but what people don't pay anywhere near as much attention to, even though it's actually a much better quality uh, uh, yield, is thermal solar for heat. Uh, you know, PV at its best uh, converts 10 to 15 percent of the sun's energy on the area that it hits into electricity. A decently engineered uh, solar uh, thermal heating system uh, can capture 60, 65, maybe even 70 percent uh, of the uh, energy that falls on the collector plates. And the collector plates are a lot less uh, expensive than the PV systems uh, per square inch. And so uh, I believe that the area of building uh, family or small cluster size thermal uh, uh, solar-based heating systems is underexplored. Uh, so I would love to see somebody do a project like that. Hell, I might even put up part of the prize. Cool. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, thanks. And uh, certainly in Canada, getting free heating uh, would be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Actually, speaking of heat, one of the things that we talked about is, uh, um, you know, Septic tanks generate a lot of heat when the, the stuff decomposes. So we're talking about uh, using some of that heat for heating in the winter, you know, wrapping water pipes around the septic tanks and putting that water through, uh, you know, a heating system. And uh, another thing that we've talked about, so the one of our partners, the current own, owner of the property, is a manager of a uh, timber framing business. So they produce a lot of sawdust as a waste material. So we've talked about compost toilets or uh, compost heaters because again compost produces a ton of heat so interesting way to uh you know use the waste yeah i like that uh, well other one I'm, I'm sure you guys have thought about uh what we do at our farm we have a good size uh, wood furnace outside and we have a heat exchanger into our boiler system uh so that if we go away, the boiler uh, fails over. But if you're going to have people there all the time, you don't even need that. Uh, hot uh, outside wood 
furnaces that use hot water heating are amazingly great ways to get cheap heat in rural areas. And of course, it's carbon neutral. Uh, you know, as long as you're not cutting the forest down, building, you know, parking lots on it, when trees fall over. We got, you know, I don't know, a few hundred thousand trees. So we always have trees falling over. Uh, you know, you cut them up, let the forest continue to grow, and it, it will eventually recapture all that carbon. Uh, and uh, uh, we heat pretty much exclusively when we're uh, in town with our pretty good size uh, hot water uh, wood furnace uh, that, that heats our house. Yeah, that's actually exactly how the current three uh, buildings are heated on the property in the winter. Ah, very good. All righty, guys. Uh, best of luck with your project. And, uh, you know, we'll be talking regularly. Awesome. Thanks, Great. Jim. Thanks so much for having us. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.